I'm Bonnie Glazer, director of the China Power Project at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. In this episode of the China Power Podcast, we're discussing China's relationship with the Middle East and North Africa region, or MENA. In recent years, China has become an increasingly important economic and a geopolitical player in the MENA region. As the world's largest importer of crude oil, China has a keen interest in the Middle East's vast oil reserves. China has also been building closer ties with individual countries such as Iran, the United Arab Emirates, Saudi Arabia, and Egypt, among others. While China is seeking to deepen its cooperation with the region through its Belt and Road Initiative, it has tried its best to stay above the fray in terms of the region's bitter political disputes. In a region marked by volatility, some question if an increased Chinese presence brings more stability or instability. To discuss Chinese interests, investment, cooperation, and evolving role in the Middle East, I'm joined by my colleague, Dr. John Alterman. Dr. Alterman is a senior vice president here at CSIS and holds the Zbigniew Brzezinski Chair in Global Security and Geostrategy. And he's also director of the Middle East Program. Thanks for joining us today, John. Thank you, Bonnie. It's good to be with you. So 20 years ago, maybe even 10, China was really peripheral to the Middle East. But that really does seem to be changing in recent years, especially, of course, with China's growing demand for oil imports, but also for other reasons. So can you talk a little bit about China's changing interests in the region and why these interests are expanding? Sure. I think, you know, first, it was probably more than 10 years ago because I wrote a book about China, the United States, and the Middle East 11 years ago. That's right. And I had enough to talk about then. It certainly has grown a lot. The main initial driver is China became a net importer of oil in 1993. It has, for decades, gotten more than half of its oil from the Middle East. And as it has really become the leading driver of oil demand growth in the world, countries producing oil have said, gee, we need to have relationships with China because European demand is declining, U.S. demand has flattened, and if you're looking for broader markets, China's where most of those new markets will be. It is a much more robust relationship than just an energy relationship. China trades a lot with the Middle East. A lot of Chinese trade goes through the Middle East. Most Chinese trade with Africa goes through Dubai in some way. Much of China's trade with the Middle East goes through a small number of Gulf ports. China's trade with Europe goes through the Red Sea and the Suez Canal. So there's a way in which China is not only looking to the Middle East for oil supply, not only as a hub for trading, as a venue they have to go by, so security becomes an issue. They've also made a lot of money building cheap infrastructure quickly because, of course, a lot of these states feel a need for infrastructure. And China has so much domestic experience building infrastructure, and they've had to export a lot of their capacity as their domestic demand has flattened. And the Middle East has been an important place. Billions of dollars of infrastructure construction in Saudi Arabia, in the UAE, in North Africa, and elsewhere. So it's been a real growing market. There, I think, is a bit of a geostrategic piece of this with Iran. 
China has a lot of interest in Iran. We should talk about them. But there's a way in which U.S.-Iranian tensions are a great gift to China because they draw the U.S. away from the Western Pacific and into the Persian Gulf. And so I think China, as it looks at these deepening relationships, has a fairly nuanced and complex sense of what it's trying to do. And a lot of things make them cautious of getting overly engaged in the Middle East because they feel the U.S. is the preponderant foreign power in the Middle East. But they also see opportunities doing small things in the Middle East that advance China's global interests. So since you mentioned um, Iran, why don't we dig into that a little bit? The United States, of course, has been trying to pressure China, among other countries, to not buy oil uh, from Iran. Yet the Chinese have continued to do so in defiance of U.S. threats, and the U.S. is now pursuing sanctions, particularly imposing sanctions, I think, about a week ago against this Chinese state-run oil company, Zhuhai Junrong, and its chief executive, although that company's exposure to the United States is apparently nil, so it's really more of a shot across the bow than it is uh, something really substantive. But why is it that China is, in fact, defying the United States on this? What is the nature of this relationship between China and Iran? Why is it so important to Beijing? There are a lot of reasons, it seems to me, why China is interested in Iran. One is that all of the other energy producers in the Gulf are close allies of the United States. And China feels that this is a hedge against the U.S. cutting off China's access to oil because they would have a supplier. Iran could be a terrestrial supplier of oil because you could go across Asia with a Belt and Road Initiative. Iran's a great greenfield investment. People don't want to put money in Iran. Iran is in many ways primed for economic development. From a pure business perspective, Iran is attractive to the Chinese. There's the reason, as we talked about before, the more that there are tensions between the U.S. and Iran, the more it draws the U.S. out of the Western Pacific. There's a way in which U.S.-Iranian tensions help divide a broad multilateral coalition led by the United States, which China finds troubling as it expands its influence around the globe. It seems to me that there are all kinds of really good reasons, complementary but distinct, why China feels an Iran relationship with China advances their interests. They're cautious about doing too much with the Iranians. One of the things that I've been struck by is when I talk to Chinese Middle East experts, they meet with the same Iranians that Americans do. They don't have a, a different set of foreigners to meet with. They don't totally trust the Iranians, but Iran is a tremendous opportunity for China, and they don't want to shut the door on it. Now, interestingly, the Saudis saw this, and the Saudis said it would be a problem if the Iranian-Chinese relationship got too close. And so Saudi Arabia made sure they export more oil to China than Iran does. And that gives them some voice in China's Iran policy. But I think at core, from a Chinese perspective, they have Iran where they want it. They represent about 30% of Iranian imports and exports. By far, China is Iran's number one trading partner. But the flip side, Iran is less than 1% of Chinese trade. And so China retains enormous power in this relationship to shape it the way they want to. And Iran is really forced, while it needs a Chinese outlet, that also gives the Chinese an advantage uh, over the Iranians. 
So I want to talk a little bit about China's relationship with Israel, which I think has always been important to China and perhaps is becoming more important. I think the Chinese would like to get more technology from Israel, probably military technology and maybe and even surveillance access to maybe ports in Israel. So I want to talk uh, particularly about that port in Haifa, where Shanghai International Port Group, it's a Chinese state-owned company, is expected to operate part of the Haifa port beginning in 2021. It's near an Israeli naval base that serves as a frequent port of call for the U.S. Navy. And so this is something that I think was a real wake-up call for the United States. Some people here at the Pentagon are really quite concerned, and yet I wonder how Israel sees it. Are they are, are they not concerned about Chinese influence? They just see commercial value in it? And what does this tell us about perhaps future ways in which China and Israel might work together? It's a very interesting question which I've been looking at for some time, and it's been changing. There was a time in the early 2000s, Israel was a source for China of U.S. military technology, and the U.S. put an end to it. The Israelis were barred from the Pentagon for some period of time in protest over Israeli actions in an administration that was extraordinarily friendly to Israel. So that ended. And I remember a delegation of Israeli officials came here maybe a little less than 10 years ago and said, how do we remain interesting to China? Because they felt China's a big country. It's an increasingly influential country. And they didn't want China to just be connected to the oil exporting states of the Gulf. They wanted to be relevant to China. They found ways to be relevant partly through counterterrorism expertise, and the Chinese believe they have a terrorism problem in the West. And the Israelis helped them with the terrorism on tactics, on equipment, on, on, I assume, software, and all kinds of things that boost Chinese capabilities in the West. There is a whole technology universe in Israel that the Chinese want insight into. Uh, in terms of software development, software security. Israel is some of the best based on people who got their training in the Israeli army and have gone out into private industry, and, and the Chinese want to tap into that. There's a broader Chinese interest in the Israeli economy, just as an investment. And, and Chinese investors recently bought the largest dairy company in Israel, which sounds a little bit strange. Israel's a relatively small place. The entire population of Israel could fit into many Chinese cities, but they've been investing straightforward investments in Israel. When I've spoken to Israelis, and I was just there in, in May, talking in part about where they see China going, they say, look, China is a growing power in the world, and we'd be crazy not to have a developing relationship with China. We'd be crazy to assume our U.S. relationship will never change. So it's only prudent to have a hedge by opening a relationship with China. The concern is whether Israeli openness to Chinese infrastructure, construction, technology will give the Chinese avenues into surveillance in Israel, which could affect U.S. national security and Israeli national security. This has been a debate in Israel. There were some reports that came out in spring of 2019. There have been discussions about how Israelis should treat it. In their discussions with me, I sort of drew two conclusions. The first is they sort of wink and say, we're very good technologically. We can protect our infrastructure. And so the Israelis seem confident 
that they can prevent the Chinese from, from implanting things in communications infrastructure, in, in rail infrastructure and other things that would either advance Chinese interests or harm American interests. The other thing is they seem to want to address the problem not through a formal CFIUS-like process, but through a more ad hoc process that would involve their intelligence agencies, but not go through a, a formal process that they feel could alienate the Chinese. So in a more ad hoc way, they're hoping to address American concerns without offending Chinese partners. How long that is sustainable depends in part on what happens in the U.S.-Chinese relationship and in part what the Chinese end up doing. The issue of, of China having the possibility of intelligence assets buried in, in especially port infrastructure and communications infrastructure around the world is a broader issue and one that the Israelis say they are focused on and I presume are focused on, but which will be closely watched in the United States. So as I said in the introduction, you know, the Chinese have been fairly successful in staying out of the region's disputes. Example would be the Arab-Israeli conflict. And they say that they want to stick to this policy of non-interference in other countries' domestic affairs. I wonder if you think that this commitment that they have made, whether they will really be able to adhere to this going forward, or are they going to get drawn in to some of the region's politics and be forced to take sides, which would have uh, implications, I think, for China's role going forward in the Middle East, if they cannot be friends with everyone, which is China's current goal? I think it's actually something broader. It feels to me like China is exploring a new theory of imperialism, whereas imperialism 1.0 was European imperialism. Imperialism 2.0 is the rules-based liberal international order that the U.S. helped create and maintain for 75 years after World War II. And imperialism 3.0 is this Chinese approach, light military footprint, relatively light diplomatic footprint, but a desire for inclusion while not leading anything. And we saw you know, it's important to the Chinese. They're part of the P5 plus one with Iran. The Chinese for a long time were arguing they should be part of the Arab-Israeli quartet. They wanted to be included. They wanted to be passive participants in those kinds of things and get inclusion, but not have the expensive military footprint, not have the expensive diplomatic footprint, not create the kinds of diplomatic liabilities from being active, but by virtue of the presumed size of future contracts, by spreading the idea that China has figured out how to do economic development without social and political change, be welcomed in as a limited partner in all of these countries, while the United States keeps trying to do expensive things with lots of military troops and equipment and ambitious projects about social and political change that alienate people, antagonize and enmesh the United States in all these conflicts, and that China would be able to appear to be everybody's friend by arguing for a rather narrow development that advances everybody's interests. I'm not sure how well that works. Partly, I wonder how attractive the China model will seem in five or 10 years based on what happens domestically in China. I don't know how some of the economic plans will work. There are talk about the Chinese building white elephants, and now they have a railway in Africa that is a train to nowhere. I don't know whether they're going to be able to maintain such a light diplomatic footprint if things start melting down. 
But I think they are serious about making that bet. They, they had a moment that was a crisis of faith during the Arab Spring in 2011. They felt maybe they had been a little too close to regimes. They were getting shut out of Libya, where they'd had 30,000 workers that had to be quickly evacuated, doing billions of dollars of infrastructure construction. They were unsure about how to deal with Syria, and they were talking about they had some arms length talks with the Syrian opposition. There was maybe a sense that that betting on the status quo in the Middle East was not going to serve their interests so well. In point of fact, I think they feel pretty good about the bets they made, the way they've played out over the last eight years. I think they are betting on governments, and they think this whole idea of, of energizing populations is crazy. And governments are very eager to engage with the Chinese. There's sort of aura about the Chinese, which I find breathtaking. When I talk to people in the Gulf and broader, I mean, in Egypt and elsewhere, they, they all sort of think they all can be the hub of the Belt and Road. And my understanding of the physics of hubs is there's one hub, and then there are lots of spokes. But, but everybody has imagines that they're vital, that, there's, that, that this is going to bring huge investment, that, that everything will flow through. And the Chinese have done a magnificent job of creating enough ambiguity, but enough hope that all the leaders in the region project themselves to have a robust future with China. The sort of the soft power of China based largely on expectations is remarkable. A little bit like what the United States enjoyed in the Middle East right after World War I when we were not an imperial power and people hoped the U.S. would would solve problems, we were going to solve Palestine, which we're still working on. I think the Chinese benefit partly from not having a track record and partly from people attaching aspirations to them. I, I, I wonder, even in five years and certainly 10, where they will be and, and how much of that luster will remain. There are several instances in which Beijing voted along with Moscow on UN Security Council resolutions concerning Syria, certainly in opposition to positions that the United States had with Britain and France. And so does that suggest that there is greater potential for Chinese-Russian cooperation in the Middle East? To my mind, a lot of Chinese-Russian cooperation in the Middle East is based on two fundamental shared premises. One is they should work with governments and not people, which is interesting for two countries with revolutionary history, but they're very much status quo powers and they want to work with states. And I think they agree on that. And there's a way in which the U.S. and European view that these countries do have to, to adapt and be much more inclusive and democratic, that China and Russia are skeptical about what chaos brings and want to keep a lid on things. They also are united in feeling that if the U.S. hegemony in the Middle East is contrary to their interests. So things that pick apart the American model for the region, that make things more complicated, that ensure that popular movements supported by the United States can't take control, I think they, they each see it to be in their interest. I'm not sure they trust each other in the Middle East. I don't see them seeking to do anything together in the Middle East. And certainly China has been very reluctant to project any force into the Middle East. But I think these two poles of 
what's this crazy stuff about supporting revolutionaries? Why do we ever want to do that? Or even evolutionaries? Why should we support more inclusive politics? That's crazy. I think they agree on that. And they agree that if the U.S. were to have total freedom in the region, it would be bad for their interests. I want to ask you about the attitudes of Middle Eastern countries toward the incarceration of a large number of Uyghurs in Xinjiang. There was the recent letter that was signed by UN ambassadors from 37 countries essentially supporting China's actions. And approximately one-third of those signatories came from Muslim-majority countries in the MENA region. So why are these countries supporting China? Why are their populations not more vocal and concerned about what appears to be a Chinese effort to sinify and maybe even almost exterminate Islam and other religions. Why aren't people outraged? Why aren't governments outraged? It's easier to imagine why governments aren't outraged because governments see themselves as having important future relationships with China. It's harder to understand why non-governmental forces are not gathering. Governments in the Middle East have had influence over religious institutions for a very long time, and they've been institutionalizing their influence over religious institutions for the last century. But still, there's a certain independence that clerical leaders have. There's a certain necessary freedom of thought that occurs in the religious sphere. And I have been struck at how little concern there is. I remember when there was tremendous religious concern about the Balkans and Muslim populations of the Balkans. There has been tremendous religious concern about Palestine for my entire life and probably for yours. But there has not really been any popular concern over the Uyghurs. And that is surely in part because the governments have tried to squelch it. But it must also be because the populations aren't that concerned. Now, it's partly because these are Turkic Muslims and there's a certain Arab-Turkish rivalry which dates back several centuries. And, and there's a little bit of that going on. It's partly because there's not a lot of information freely available in Arabic about the Uyghurs. But even so, even if you say there's a tremendous governmental effort to squelch it, it still strikes me as puzzling that there's not more bubbling going on than there is. And I think, frankly, it's an indictment of the religious communities and cast doubt on the sincerity of Muslim religious protests about the treatment of Muslims around the world if Muslims in China are ignored because it's geostrategically inconvenient for their governments to say anything critical about China. So if it is a function of people being unaware and then there is a heightened awareness of it, then do you think that this might lead to greater action or you dismiss the idea that it really has to do with the knowledge about the incarceration of the Uyghurs? I think if there is more understanding of what's happening, governments will take a more nuanced approach. I am struck governments in the Middle East are not taking a nuanced approach. They are not trying to press the Chinese. They may be listening to Chinese arguments of, you don't talk about our domestic things and we won't talk about yours. I could imagine that conversation happening. 
But I also think that the governments should do what the United States does, which is to say, notwithstanding the deep cooperation agreement across all these things, we have a real problem with this. We're talking about something on the order of maybe 20% of the Uyghur population being these re-education camps. I mean, it's almost mind-boggling, the scale. And it is clearly for reasons of religious belief and practice. And the Muslim community seems disinterested, which, as I said, doesn't speak well for the things that the Muslim community expresses interest about. It feels much more manufactured and much less genuine if you can turn it off because it's inconvenient. Well, thanks very much for joining us today. We've been talking with Dr. John Alterman, who holds the Brzezinski Chair in Global Security and Geostrategy and directs the Middle East program at CSIS, and his many writings on the Middle East, but particularly on China's role in the Middle East, can be found on the CSIS website, including a testimony to Congress regarding China's role and interests in the Middle East earlier this year. So thanks again for joining us. Thank you, Bonnie.